0: Okay, we are live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates on today's show I have a very special guest. His name is Christopher Loring Knowles, and he's been kind of on my radar. People have sent me his material from his blog, which he's been writing for 15 years. The blog is secretsun.blogspot.com. Great information there. Highly recommend people check that out. But during my research, I come back around. And somebody will send me a post or something. So I've I've been aware of him, so I'm delighted to have him on the show to talk about his most recent book, which is superb. I really read through most of it, like two-thirds of it today. title of the book is The Endless American Midnight Dispatches from the Secret Sun. And it was originally published in 2020. I think he updated it recently. Mm -hmm. And he's done just superb research and talked to people I wish I had talked to, like he has a conversation with Bobby Buzoleh. I research for some of my, uh, my work, but his full bio is at the end of this book. I'm just going to read through it in some of the other books he's written. Christopher Loring Knowles is the author of the novel, He Will Live Up in the Sky, as well as the Eagle Award-winning Our God's Worst Spandex, The Secret History of Comic Book Heroes, and The Secret History of Rock and Roll, The Mysterious Roots of Modern Music. He's the co-author of The Complete X-Files, Behind the Series, The Myths, and The Movies. He was an associate editor and columnist for the five-time Eisner Award-winning comic book artist magazine, as well as a writer and reviewer for Classic Rock magazine. He's appeared on ABC's 2020 and VH1's Metal Evolution and several radio shows, including National Public Radio and The Voice of America. He has also appeared in several documentaries, such as Wonder Woman, Daughter of Myth, and The Man, The Myth, Superman. He has also lectured on science fiction, mysticism, and mythology at the legendary Esalen Institute at Big Sur. And uh, he regularly blogs on The Secret Sun. So I'll put those links in the show notes so you can check it out. But uh, today we'll talk about this, this book. title is apropos. Uh, I think he writes in his book, when he, I was reading through this, he says there's kind of like a, I don't remember the exact phrase that he used, but there's kind of like a secret haunting of uh, America or, or of himself, of all this really heavy stuff that's happened in the United States. And I think he includes a lot of that in this book. But Christopher, people who don't know your background or may not have read your other books, can you kind of talk about what led you to kind of compile this book, The Endless American Midnight?
1: Well, people have been asking me for years to do so, um, you know, to put a lot of the Secret Sun stuff together. Um, A lot of the stuff I've done has sort of been like, you know, symbolic analysis. And that would entail using a lot of copyrighted material that I wouldn't really have access to. So... I concentrated on more of the essays, you know, more of that kind of material, but, you know, it had a very pointed mission because when I first put the book together, it was during all that nonsense during the summer of 2020 and, um, you know, just kind of watching this whole situation come undone. But also, you know, like my primary interest, area interest is, you know, the culture and how... It, all these greater movements and and greater powers, influence the culture and how that expresses itself in the culture. And I think that anybody at this point in time, is going to look at our our culture and just see that it's, it's very, very sick. And it's, um, you know, it is haunted, you know, we're really at a point in time now, where we we don't have a culture, we don't have a society really. And the the stories that we tell each other are all very sick and weird and contrived. You know, there's this whole movement towards like wokeness and everything like that. And that was like a real big focal point for me was just to see how this stuff has really been feeding into the the culture because all this you know, I'm, I'm sure you know, and I'm sure your listeners know, is that all the smokeness kind of stuff, it's all very top down. It's all coming from, you know, the C-suites. It's all coming from the highest echelons of uh, finance and uh, international relations. Um, it, it's this very strange agenda, but there's also the issue of how social media is affecting people, um, we just had a very strange situation right now, you know, and I'm a grandfather now, so I really have skin in the game. I have three kids and I have a grandchild now. So I'm very concerned about the future because, you know, I've sort of staked my claim in the future and I'm just trying to analyze and get a handle on and how we've become so sick and, and what's led to that. And one of the things that I've been very focused on over the years is, you know, all these various kind of intelligence operations that have moved the culture and have poisoned the culture in, in, in very many ways. And that's why I have a big thing on, on the Manson issue. You know, you talked about my my interview with Bobby Beausoleil. Um, yeah, I interviewed him from prison for a piece that I had done for Classic Rock back in 2005. And, you know, to me, like, it just seems to me that all this has become... I don't want to say more relevant because, you know, certainly the Manson thing has less of a, a hold on the culture, but I mean, look at once upon a time in, in Hollywood, I mean, big hit movie just came out a couple years ago and, and sort of brought that up. But the thing that I was really concerned about with the Manson material was the process and how that, you know, seemed to be this silent player behind the scenes that weaves through all these kind of events and, uh, you know, where their you money know. came from and all that kind of stuff.
0: Right, and you also keep the theme is MK often keeps popping up in your mm. book too, which is, can you talk about that and what Bobby Bousillet was like? A lot of people don't know, and you, you mentioned this in your book, that he was friends with Kenneth Anger, which I think is a very important piece of the whole Manson saga that some writers don't uh, note, but you did.
1: Yeah, well, it's very interesting because we had this whole situation and again, like the process shows up in Mayfair, which is, you know, I mean, that's the ritziest area of London, right? The most expensive real estate in London. And how somehow they will be able to afford a townhouse with a bowling alley and a cinema and everything in it. And then they start setting up in uh, you know, Boston, Los Angeles, and San Francisco, but also New Orleans. They're down in the Gulf of Mexico, they're down in the Bahamas. You know, I mean, if you read between the lines, it gets pretty easy to see what's behind that situation. Um, MK often. Okay. So MK often is, is a very controversial topic. And there are a lot of people who have a lot of different takes on it. And I sort of follow on the idea that it was, a, a, a ancestor or, you know, it was a, a program that arose out of the, the dissolution of the original MK ultra project. And it seems to me that if you look, say, at the year 1966, when it's believed that MK often split off as its own sub-project, you start to see, you know, I mean, obviously, Kenneth Anger shows up in San Francisco. He's getting money from the Getty Foundation. He's getting money from the Ford Foundation. Um, you know, Bobby Beausoleil shows up there. They're living at the, uh, the old Russian embassy near haight ashbury which is you know very expensive building very expensive piece of real estate um you know manson gets out he's sort of bopping around uh anton levey sets up shop you know again in san francisco and then you know there's this witch from from england who starts getting on all the talk shows this woman named sybil leak and it just seemed to me that i was looking at you know it's it's a kind of thing where you need to it's deductive logic, because you sort of need to look at the gaps. I mean, there's so little information known on this, and there's a lot of controversy about this topic, but I was going on the idea that there's this project to sort of disseminate all this black magic and satanic and, you know, slasher movies start up at the same time. Really, um, you know, it's just it almost seems like a poisoning of the culture that I think was very much not in line with like what was going on in 1966, 1967, which was, you know, flower power and peace and love and all these kinds of things. And all of a sudden you have this very dark material being disseminated in, in what seems to be a very coordinated fashion. And that, you know, was very troubling to me. And this is something that I had done a lot of work on back in 2016. And I started looking at all these strange things like, the premiere of Night of the Living Dead during a a children's matinee in Chicago, which had a very strict board of censors. And Roger Ebert had, you know, went there, he was at that premiere. And he sort of described this whole nightmare scenario of all these kids who are getting dropped off by their parents, you know, to watch, you know, Bugs Bunny cartoons are all being, you know, severely traumatized by this movie. And it seemed to me that this was, you know, a very deliberate experiment to see how these very young children would react to this kind of material. And also sort of taking it up to, uh, you know, the exorcist in the early 70s, because I was looking at William Peter Blatty, who seems to be part of this orbit in in many ways, because he was in the U.S. Information Agency, but he was also a psychological warfare expert for for the Air Force. And then I was looking at, the um, the early showings of the exorcist and you know all this hysteria and, and all these kind of symptoms that people were displaying that they would not display at later showings. And it it very much looked to me like they were um, experimenting with subsonic weaponry that they were, you know, they were also using at this very same time in the field. In uh, Vietnam. So again I mean it's just kind of looking at all these kind of things that just don't seem spontaneous and just all this very dark and disturbing material that's being disseminated out into the public and trying to figure out like why like what what was what was behind this and and I felt you know, very strongly, and, and, you know, this is research that I I need to continue with, but I felt very strongly that there was a a project behind this, there was a program behind this, that this was not spontaneous, that this was not just some outpouring of, you know, some sudden enthusiasm for, uh, you know, serial killers, (laughs) and, and all this kind of stuff, you know, because, you know, I mean, Dave McGowan had talked about how you know, the whole serial killer phenomenon really starts up at the same time. And that to me doesn't seem accidental either. You know, it just seems to me that there was, there was definitely an agenda here. There was definitely a program. And, um, you know, I wonder if, if it had some sort of connection to say, uh, you know, the Gladio program, um, you know, just very much like, um, you know, infiltration of society as a whole with, with just very dark and destructive uh, archetypes and so on.
0: But it, but it changed. Like, if you talk to people in the early 60s, there was a real, ch- like, peace and love was really the theme. It got darkened later on, Altamont and Manson.
1: Mm-hmm. But
0: so if you talk to those people who were in the mid-60s when they were fighting against Vietnam, and that was an interesting aspect of your conversation with Boussoulet, as he said, it was all done in the backdrop of Vietnam this really vicious unnecessary war but mm. there was yes. a marked change like almost like it says and there was a uh, I highlighted a sentence from your book which you say you see it as a long running occult war on the american people being waged by powerful lunatics within the intelligence community so yes. i think that there's i think that there's a basis in fact that there was a lot of other things going on too Defries and the Symbionese liberation army in california mm-hmm. jim mm-hmm. jones which mm-hmm. definitely had an intel background all these guys are Intel. A great book by Brad Schreiber, "Revolutions," and I always promote it. But people got to read that book; it's off the charts. But yeah, so it's
1: all interesting that it's all occurring within this this I don't know fifty or sixty, you know, mile radius around the Bay Area. But this is also where you know the work was being down uh, being done in Palo Alto at Xerox Park, you know, and all this kind of you know technology that we're using now. Um, there was a lot of Scientology that was very strong in those circles. Um, ufology, uh, drug experimentation. It just seemed like there was was this very thick soup that was being made. And, you know, again, like the whole phenomenon with the serial killers. Um, emerging from that, you know, but one of the things that I was doing is that I was looking at all these charts, and I was sort of compare, uh, comparing, you know, the rise and fall of, of the serial killer as a phenomenon, and it was almost directly correlative to the rise and fall of the the slasher movies as a phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, you like people talk about things like the satanic panic. When, when people bring that up, I get very annoyed. Like it really bothers me because it's like. They don't even know what they're talking about. They don't even know what that means. They just read it somewhere in the New York Times or something. You know, the thing I like to point out is that the Satanic Panic was originally manufactured by the mainstream media. You know, it was it was not, it didn't grow out of like backwoods uh, independent Baptist churches in, in the Appalachian Mountains. It, it grew out of offices in New York and Los Angeles. You know, specifically Michelle Remembers being published by St. Martin's Press, which was a huge, I don't know what they are now, but at the time they were a huge imprint, huge book imprint. And that really started the ball rolling. And then it's all like Geraldo and Sally Jesse and Phil Donahue and Oprah and and all these kind of people that are are keeping this thing moving. And then, you know, uh, people in the psychological establishment and everything like that. You know, so they talk about this like this was like some sort of pitchfork uprising, but really when you look at the, the exact history of it, you know, people like, I don't know, like, uh what's his name? <sighs> you know, Larson, Bob Larson.
0: Oh, right. The, the, you know, the, all these yeah. evangelical yeah. angle to that story.
1: Yeah. I mean, they were really kind of riding the coattails of it. And again, I mean, this seemed to me like just part of this overarching program, you know, that that there was it because I've always seen like Satanism and everything is like it's a huge supply side thing. You know, this. People just aren't interested in Satanism, you know, who aren't like, I don't know, like sex perverts or something or weirdos. It's not something that, that people are drawn to. Even, you know, like people will be drawn to the occult and everything. But Satanism, it's like this always this weird thing, but it's always connected to intelligence or the police or some sort of security apparatus. I mean, for instance, Levey was a snitch for the SFPD. And, and now we have the Satanic Temple, which has all these kind of CIA connections and so on like that. So it just seems to be like a very, um, you know, a top down thing. And that's what I saw when I was looking at this, this material connecting to MK often is that it just seemed like it was just it was a very much top down supply side thing. And, and I don't think there was this great hue and cry for this stuff until people sort of became conditioned where that, you know, up until the late 60s and early 70s.
0: Yeah, no, it's it is interesting that all of that really sprang up in the late '60s, all at the same time in the same area. It's just yeah. incredible. It's, yeah,
1: it, I mean, it's so not, California
0: it's not was, was was kind of like the foundation of all these new ideas. And Scientology, really, if you look at what Hubbard's son said, Scientology is black magic just drawn out over a long period of time. Tons of Crowley involved in that too. But uh, mm. yeah, I mean, it really does show that there's just like, yeah. It's just an incredible event that all that Satanism had some kind of intel background. A lot of it. Well,
1: did. see, I you know, I get into trouble with a lot of people because when I talk about MKUltra, you know, I say like the technology for Manchurian candidates and you know, sleeper agents and all this kind of stuff, that's been known for a very long time, at least a thousand years. You know, these in Syria, it kind of mastered that that technology. And, and I don't believe that you know people like Gottlieb and all these other people that, that that's what they were really after. I, I think that they had a, a much different agenda. That they were using the whole idea of tra- you know of mind-controlled assassins and things like that to basically get the funding. But I, I think that their agenda was you know much broader based. Um, I, th- I think they wanted to transform society as a whole. I don't think they were just interested in you know, creating this very small selective group of mind-controlled assassins. I think it was about, you know, in some ways, driving society insane and you know, making large amounts of people prepared you know, to be vessels for entity possession you know, and again, I mean, this is something I get in a lot of trouble with people when, you know, I start bringing this up, you know, the whole supernatural angle, but it's just, it's just the way I see things. And it's something that I've been looking at for a very long time. You know, and it's like you said, I mean, I've talked to people like Beau and everything like that. I and mean, I've kind of seen the way the stuff operates from the inside a bit. And it's, I, you know, I just think that this was a much, it's a much broader effort that I think is bearing fruit today. And that's, you know, that's part of the impetus behind this book that I was kind of tracking this phenomenon over the years and how this has developed and and, and what has laid the groundwork for this. You know, I looked a lot like the whole um, thing with the skeptic movement and the scientism movement and the new atheist movement and just realizing, wow, um, this can all be tied back to Jeffrey Epstein and his people um, that he was funding most of those people you know he was funding most of the most of the skeptics and new atheists and so on and there's this whole idea of creating like this scientific culture you know and this is all very explicit in his circles you know but i think that it was used by other people to kind of i guess sort of knock down the uh, re- any kind of remaining resistance to this this gra- grander and greater project which is you know the, a broader based societal transformation that has a s- very heavy supernatural component to
0: it but wasn't that at the really inception of mk ultra the mind control people think that they just wanted to touch one person's mind i'm pretty sure they were thinking at a societal level right they absolutely were thinking, yeah, yeah so that absolutely. was one component of it yeah
1: yeah, no I, I believe that very strongly, and you know one of the reasons I believe this very strongly is that i've I've gone back and read a lot of this material and I've read a lot of you know the original source material, and all these experiments that you know, say somebody like Cameron was running up up in Montreal had absolutely no scientific basis at all, but it did have a basis. In very ancient techniques around, say, creating, you know, shamans and medicine men and in tribal societies, you know, things like drug use, sex abuse, uh, sensory deprivation, you know, certain kinds of ordeals and everything like that. You know, I mean, even the things with the, the depatterning with the, the to shape recorders, I mean, that ties into the whole idea of mantras and so on. So if you really start to look critically at the methodology behind, you know, somebody like a Ewan Cameron. Um, it just has absolutely no scientific credibility whatsoever, but it does have a very ancient lineage that you can trace back to, uh, the occult and demonology really.
0: Right. And I think that the original assassins, the name has comes from hash. So they were given Mm. massive amounts of hash put in some paradise, where they were given all earthly pleasures, so they were undergoing the ancient world's version of repatterning, depatterning, right? Absolutely, drugs, Abs-
1: yeah. absolutely, absolutely. It goes back. I, I think you know. I mean, there are probably uh, anthropologists who could trace this back to the Stone Age, right? Because we have. Examples of this, say in isolated tribes in the Amazon, and so on, or you know, when anthropologists were really starting to do their work, say in the South Pacific, back in the twenties and thirties, and so on. You know, I mean, we have observation of pre-technological societies that didn't have a great deal of contact with the outside world, and we see the the um, the practice of these methodologies. But it goes back in the ancient world. I mean, if you look at, you know, I talk a lot about the Mithraic cults because I think they still very much exist. And it was the same kind of deal. You know, it was um, initiation by ordeal. Uh, you know, they just pumped these guys full of drugs and, you know, they'd be raped and, and thrown in pits and, and drenched in, in bull's blood and all this kind of craziness. You know, these ordeals that were meant to, you know, transform them, you know, basically from the inside out.
0: It made me think of the order of nine angles, right? When well, that section on Mithraism you had was like, that's mm. what they do—is like they go through ordeals to create change, exeatic ordeals, and it's all based in all ancient Greek type stuff. So, I was yeah, like, it, it, it,
1: it. yeah, it goes back very far, and I think the problem is that a lot of um, I don't know, I guess a lot of people sort of don't connect the dots, you know, because we have all these—it's almost like we have all these sort of freestanding disciplines where somebody's looking at. Um, you know, the occult, and somebody's looking at the ancient mysteries, and somebody's looking at, um, you know, shamanism, drug use, and then somebody's looking at, you know, more modern expressions of of MKUltra, and artichoke, and bluebird, and then paperclip. I mean, all these kind of things, this, this whole uh, network of, pro, you know, interlocking programs. And they don't really realize that it's all part of one phenomenon and that this has all been known. You know, I mean, we live in this kind of secular post-enlightenment culture where we've convinced ourselves that these things don't exist or these, you know, people aren't really interested in these things. It's just like some sort of weird, I don't know, sex fetish for them or something. And it's like, no, no, they are really interested in it because these, these techniques have been known for a long time and these techniques accomplish what they're after, you know.
0: Right. And I, I mean, going back to Epstein, it is interesting that you mentioned a lot of these guys are are into all this like uh, scientism. Kurzweil, you mentioned mm-hmm. uh, so many of these other characters. And I was surprised at how Lawrence Rockefeller popped up and he was supporting many of these new age movements. I didn't know, but I know that he was supporting John Mack. Mm-hmm. There's a picture of him with Mack. But you see all that, that UFO,
1: uh, all that UFO stuff from the 90s was all his money absolutely yeah, it's incredible but he he also he was also behind esalen and you know nomadic sciences and integral studies you know, you know all these kind of um you know the zen center he was his money had really created this whole new age network of institutes in california that exist to this day and you know still very um influential to this day and, you know, and for instance, um, you know, in the past 20 years or so, uh, Esalen has really become a hotspot for, uh, Silicon Valley, you know, Silicon Valley is, is very much kind of taking that whole thing over in the same way that big tech money has taken over Burning Man. And it's interesting because, you know, you hear about something like uh, Bohemian Grove, right? And everybody's like, well, Bohemian Gross sort of started off as this thing for all these weird actors from the San Francisco Theater District, you know, as, you know kind of mock rituals and so on. And, but it was eventually, you know, systematically infiltrated by, you know, the, the upper echelons of the Bay Area, you know, all these banking interests and so on. And the same thing's happening now with, with Burning Man. I mean, it's being taken over by, you know, big tech millionaires and billionaires. Yeah.
0: Right, and Esalen, you've been to Esalen. I mean, it's a really incredible spot. Like, I don't know how they got that land, but you want to talk about the New Age tie-ins with Leary, Robert Anton Wilson, Manson, and all those people. I mean, you were there. I think you, did you see Graham, Graham Hancock there? Was it Valley? You were asked to speak there, right? Yeah, I, I uh,
1: 2008 and 2009. Um, and that was for the Superpowers and the Supernatural thing because I had published... Uh, our gods were spandex and, and Jeff Kreifel, who I'm friends with, was was very interested in it. Um, yeah, I mean it's interesting because it's it's basically just like a new age resort now. And what I was interested in doing when I was there is kind of talking to the like the people who work there, you know, and just sort of getting a sense of like, you know, the people who see this place day in and day out, and, you know, hanging around the kitchen at night and just hearing people talk and stuff. And, uh, you know, it was interesting because people were very disgruntled, you know, because a lot of these people were kind of idealists and, and they saw like how this thing was working from the inside. And a lot of these people actually started um, something was called uh, Esalen Leaks. Uh, Esalen Leaks. It was a uh, it was a blog that existed, you know, for a lot of these probably a lot of these people that I was talking to, you know, people who had been working at and stuff and sort of blowing the whistle on the things that were there. But, you know, one of the things when I did, I didn't include this material in the book, um, but when I'd done the Secret Star Trek um, series, I was really looking a lot at how, uh, you know, basically Esalen had been taken over by this channeling cult called the Council of Nine uh, back in 1979, and they were basically, this channeling cult was basically running that place until I think about 1985, when uh, Dick Price, who was a co-founder of the place, um, had a very uh, mysterious and unfortunate accident uh, just at a time when the Rockefellers were kind of looking at SLN to be um, their venue for what they called hot tub, hot tub diplomacy, when they started wooing a lot of these elements within the Soviet Union that really resulted ultimately in the Yeltsin uh, era. The Yeltsin presidency, and, and that really came out of, uh, of of Esalen. but you know where do they get the land? Where do they get this, you know, this whole situation? I, I believe that the house was Michael Murphy, who was a co-founder. I believe that the property was in his family, but the seed money to set up like an actual institute and start it, you know, inviting all these people, uh, sort of these cutting edge psychological. Researches and so on in the 60s that was all lawrence rockefeller's money absolutely
0: it's 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 an incredible piece of land it's like one of the only pieces well not it's on the west side of the highway one which going up to big sur it's really something else
1: it's it's beautiful it's a beautiful beautiful place it really is um you know, I'm not a, you know, I'm not a big New Age guy. You know, I'm I'm I, I I'm not a big New Age follower. I have a lot of uh, <laughs> a lot of issues with the New Age, and um, you know, I, I, it was interesting because I was re- you know I read a lot of these conspiracy theories and stuff, but I think a lot of the stuff that people had been talking about, I think that was really part of sort of that first flush, but I think once a lot of those people started to either die off or, or move away you know, a lot of these people who were Ultra alumni, you know, particularly John Lilly and, uh, Andrew Pahawich, and all these kind of people, I think when they started drifting away from this whole situation, I think it just really just became ultimately a new age resort. But, you know, there was this really interesting period, you know, that I talked about, um, in that series when, you know, this, this channeling cult, this, you know, ancient astronaut kind of channeling cult is basically running the place for six years. And, be, you know, the other thing is that there's all these kind of tie-ins with Star Trek and so on. And that was really interesting to me too, because when I when I actually went to Esalen, I was like, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Star Trek Insurrection, but when I, when I was at actually at Esalen, I was like, oh, my God, this is the same, you know, this is the, the planet of the Baku in Star Trek ins- Insurrection. I mean, that movie's just basically about, about Esalen. And then I went back and I just started looking. It's like, oh, Esalen's been in, Esalen's been part of Star Trek since the 60s, since the first season. And actually the Council of Nine have two. So, um, you know, the Council of Nine, I mean, you know, I'm sure you're familiar with it, came out mm-hmm. of this whole um, seance circle up in Maine. Uh, you know, it's these sort of very rich eccentrics, uh we're involved with uh with praharich and also this guy named dr vinod this sort of mysterious guru-like character so i mean this really starts off in the early 50s and then there are all these like interesting chains of custody that you know clearly show that connections between esalen and the council of nine and and you know later people like uri geller and so on it's just it's a very interesting kind of mix um you know but like i said by the time i was there that stuff is all long gone
0: it's all gone but it is interesting because you mentioned in the book this new age movement is the number one religion in the world now right or whatever yeah. spiritual but no non-aligned or whatever you called it yeah so spiritual yeah but not yeah
1: yeah. Yeah. It, you, see, here's the thing. So if you ask most people, you know, particularly people more our age, they'd be like, Oh, well, the new age is this thing that sort of happened in the eighties and nineties, and then just sort of petered it out. It's like, no, what actually happened is that it, it just completely took over the mainstream. And it's now so ubiquitous that we can't even recognize it anymore because, you know, it's almost like what, you know, like when your hair is growing, you know, you don't notice as it's growing every day. And we didn't notice as the new age just basically took over everywhere. know that every major town has you know like a whole foods and a yoga studio and a tarot card reader and an acupuncture place you know and it's all the the basic elements of the new age as they existed say in the in the 80s and 90s or back in the 70s even and they're just they're just everywhere now it's it's become so widespread and so ingrained into the mainstream of our culture that we just don't even realize it anymore. Uh it's it's really it's really remarkable. And I think that a lot of people, you know, there's always this kind of inclination to not take the new age seriously, that it's kind of goofy and silly and just like kind of a thing for like rich housewives to be into. But uh, you know, the rich housewives hold the purse strings in this economy. Don't don't believe any differently, you know. So there you go.
0: And it is interesting. And I think you also kind of key into the the different classes, the Generation Xs mm-hmm. and these Millennials and how the, the challenges are much different for the younger kids, right?
1: Yeah. It, well, you know, I got to tell you something. Um, I, I think this sort of, you know, one of the things when I talked about um, the chapter Real Life 80s Horror, when I was kind of, deconstructing the whole idea of this um satanic panic as just being this hysteria that just arose out of nothing rather than you know arose out of a very concerted 20-year effort to seed the culture with you know again with serial killer movies and the occult and satanism and then, you know, what arose out of this is that we had a, a you know, series of occult crimes starting in the early 70s, you know, starting in the early 70s when, um, you know, LaVey sort of is spreading his message far and wide. You know, the thing I always say is that you don't need to worry about like Satanists when they're like in like downtown Boho kind of funky artsy communities. You have to worry about Satanism when it when it spreads out into like the the trailer parks and the ghettos and you know the barrios and you know uh, right, like
0: Richard Ramirez, he was a perfect example.
1: Exactly, and um, you know I mean, this is something that I just get very irritated about because I I've been sort of collecting uh, news reports of satanic crimes since the early two thousands. And uh, it, it's not a big a, a problem as it was, but it was a, a major problem when, you know, like people like Marilyn Manson and everything were kind of spreading that message. And, uh, you know, I mean, this, it affects, it affects weak, weak-minded people, you know, people who are, um, have a lot of psychological issues and are impressionable, <clears throat> you know, when they, they see all this imagery and this whole message of just total license, they take it literally. They take it seriously. It's not art to them. It's not ironic. You know, it's, right. it's the way they want to live their lives. So, uh, you know, and the other thing, too, is that, um, you know, I mean, you just hear these, this all this knee-jerk stuff. It just drives me crazy. You know, like um, the whole thing about Dungeons and Dragons. You know what I mean? Well, role play was a huge part of, um, a lot of these psychological warfare operations, you know, that, that role play was taught, you know, very much developed within these things, you know, so role playing games and the other thing, you know, like I said, I mean, it's like people just don't look at the, the actual data at hand. And there was a, um, I don't know if it still exists, but there was actually a, a role playing game, um, website, from the early part like of the 2000s that also compiled all these crimes that were you know that you could connect to role-playing games and dungeons and dragons and there were a lot of them you know what i mean there are a lot of them you know a lot you know it's like there are a lot of people who are uh, just marginal people psychologically or spiritually and you know if, if you just immerse them in this kind of Unreality, this this world of unreality, which like I said, comes straight out of these mind control programs, they're gonna snap. That's just the way it is, you know. And then when you start to look at, you know, you, you mentioned like Scientology, you know, like Scientology was being you know taught in the prisons and stuff, and, and Manson sort of came out of that, and the process comes out of Scientology. Right. So it's just you know what I mean? Right. It's just
0: like oh man, and man- Manson, like, right? According to Bugliosi, Manson went into a Scientology center and said, is there anything else I, I can learn? And they said, you know everything. There's nothing else we can teach you.
1: <laughs> well, you know, but, you know, so there's the whole, and again, there's like military intelligence there because uh, Hubbard was military intelligence. And then when I did some digging, you know, with Jack Parsons and Marjorie Cameron, you find out that, you know, not only was Marjorie Cameron naval intelligence, but she had top secret clearance.
0: Wow, I didn't
1: know that. Yes, she was working. uh, She was working in Washington D.C. during the war because she's an artist. She was working on the map making programs, and she had top secret clearance. And
0: And that was interesting that you wrote that Bouzelle went south and met her. So that's like an incredible tie-in too. So he didn't know just Anger; he knew Marjorie Cameron.
1: Well, uh, she, uh, yeah. Well, Cameron was friends with Anger, Um, and I had actually interviewed Anger uh you know around the same time I interviewed both and um you know this was at a time when he was like I think he was homeless and he'd been arrested for trying to strangle somebody and everything like that I mean you know this guy's in his 80s and he's still taking drugs and doing all this crazy stuff um,
0: yeah I was in but, a heavily ritual video with uh I can't remember the actor's name but yeah I think James it's Franco called, James Franco yeah loving the yeah. old days yeah, um, yeah.
1: so it's just, I don't know, it, it just seems to be like there are these kind of networks, and, and I just think that they've had, you know, this very deleterious effect on the culture at large, you know, and part of it is just, you know, um, the lifespan of cultures, you know, the, the natural lifespan of cultures, you know, the rise and fall of certain cultural paradigms, and we're sort of on the tail end of that, excuse me. Um, right,
0: and I think you wrote they're constructing a giant techno kindergarten, being constructed for us all the time, which is really scary, actually. Like, yeah, but it's beneficial. not going to work.
1: It's not going to work. You know, I mean, all these plans that like the Great Reset, and all the smart cities, all this stuff is not going to work. Um, I, I, I have absolutely no doubt that it's not going to work. Um, the, the, the only question is like how How many of the rest of us is it going to take down with us? You know what I mean, how many of the the rest of us are going to be really badly affected because you know these plans aren't going to work because they can't work. And they also can't work because they're all based in like these science fiction fantasies. And you know in science fiction, you know, I used to be really, really into science fiction, and I, I kind of woke up. you know, I kind of red pilled myself because I just realized that so much, of the um, the craziness in our culture today is like people having these science fiction expectations of what life is supposed to be like. You know, there was actually this guy on Twitter, you know, uh, this sort of movie critic guy. And, uh, you know, he's saying, if it wasn't for these Trump voters and everything like that, you know, I'd be in my robot body on Mars and everything like that. And I'd be living forever and I could download my consciousness. It's like, no, none of that stuff will ever be real. You'll, you know, none of it the singularity, transhumanism, you know, all this stuff is just science fiction fantasy of rich neurotics, you know, people who have major psychological problems, you know, have convinced themselves of all this absolute nonsense. You know what I mean? And it's just like, we, we, you know, I keep telling people and, you know, people who've heard me a lot are going to be familiar with this, but it's like we've reached peak tech, Peak tech is is in the rearview mirror right now. I mean, we we reached peak tech a few years ago, at least. And, you know, we're on the downscale now. There, There aren't any new technologies waiting in the wings. They just aren't. And I think that, you know, we're seeing now with the whole globalist, internationalist order starting to fragment and come apart. I think a lot of that is because... There were a lot of people at that sort of Klaus Schwab, Bill Gates level who were being shined on by all the people who they were paying to create all these technological miracles for them. And they just assumed that they were based in reality. And I think sometime, you know, a few years ago, they just realized, oh, wait, these people have just been lying to us for grant money. You know, none of this stuff is going to exist. None of this stuff is going to work. And even if it does exist, it it can't be scaled up. It can't be, you know, it can't be made practicable because it's it's too expensive or it's it's too resource uh, de- demanding. I mean, it's just like we can't actually do these things. And I think what what we're seeing now, where it's just kind of like back to almost like the pre-internationalist order, it's because. They realized that the technological miracles that they they believed were going to smooth out this transition to this Jetsons kind of utopia is it, it was all just it was all nonsense from the start. It was all just like science fiction nonsense from the start, yeah,
0: science fiction mirage. Mm. Uh, Chris, Chris, do you uh, have a time to take a few questions? Sure, do. Do you, uh, Babe Rebozo, ask ask Chris to describe his Satan's Tech theory and how it has stopped? I'm not you.
1: Oh, Lucifer's tech, Lucifer's technology. technology. So Lucifer's technology is a series I had done a few years back and I was sort of looking at, um, yeah, I mean, you remember back in the nineties, all these sort of Roswell reverse technology, uh, engineering kind of things. And I was kind of looking at that, but I was also looking at a lot of other information and I really came to realize that I, you know, that Roswell, has all the hallmarks of of a high um, occult magical working you know i think it was all a very elaborate ritual that was you know depending on on your understanding or your belief in the supernatural um, was to set the stage for a lot of these things a lot of these discoveries or uncoveries or however you choose to describe them that we're going to start filtering into the um you know the, the the culture you know starting with the uh the transistor at the end of 1947 but um you know again i mean that happened in Murray Hill which isn't too far from here and actually at Bell Labs my 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 wife used to actually work at Bell Labs so you know there was just this it's a very it's, it's a long story, it's like a 14, 15 part. It's basically a book length situation, but it's just basically looking at how the introduction of a lot of the high technology that we use today and we take for granted um, really was unveiled uh, and sort of initiated or, or kicked off with a very elaborate um, occult ritual. And the thing, you know, one of the things that I, I, I say is that when you look at the whole Roswell kind of deal, the whole Roswell mythology, it always sort of welled up back in the culture um, when there were major uh, innovations in computer sciences. So the, the, the whole Roswell thing hits the culture. It hits the news services and everything. At the same time that, you know, the, the transistor is about to be released but we also have a lot of these tube vacuum vacuum tube computers yak and univac and and whirlwind and all these kind of things i mean this was all new technology and then the whole roswell thing kicks up again in the late 70s with the rise of the uh the home computer you know i mean this is a new thing you know like the apple and the apple II, and then you know the macintosh i mean the whole roswell thing's kind of showing up again you know stanton friedman and kevin randall and all these kind of people are sort of seeding this back into the culture, and then it shows up again in the '90s, with the rise of um, broadband internet and cell phones and so on. So it's just like it seems to show up with what, what I would argue like a ritual recurrence according to things that are going on in you know the, the technological realm, so to
0: speak. Interesting. Uh, Oswald Spengler asks, Is "Chris, any change of mind that the Endless American Midnight will ever come to a head since you finished the book?"
1: Ah, <laughs> uh, I don't know, man. Uh, we're in it. We're in it. I mean, see, here's the thing, though. It's like you can choose to separate yourself from it. You can choose to take yourself out of it. You know, you can choose to not engage in the world that is feeding this you know the world of social media and so on um you know you can separate yourself from mainstream culture it's, it's 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 not hard to do and like i said i mean all these these ambitious plans about this uh you know this super police state technological police state um you know those plans are very real but they're all going to fail and i i just believe that with just utmost certainty that they're all going to fail because they just can't succeed and they can't succeed because in order to run a, a high tech society, you cannot have the kind of people living under that sort of very deadening, uh, you know, I, you know, I, I hate to use the word feminizing, but it's just like a high tech society really relies very heavily on risk takers. Okay. And, People who are willing to work very, very hard and at physical risk to themselves—you know—I always point out, like the fact that you know you need people to get the the uh, phone lines back up during a hurricane or whatever. You know, I mean, you need people to to do like very dirty, unhappy work that, in, in many cases, is dangerous. And if you don't have those kinds of people, you can't run a high-tech society. You just can't. And, uh, you know, technology, technological systems are not self-sustaining. They need to be constantly um, monitored and, and maintained and upgraded.
0: Interesting. And uh, one question for me is, why is Jacob's Ladder your favorite film? <laughs> uh,
1: for, for very unhappy reasons, because uh, it reminds me a lot of uh, experiences that I had when I was a kid, so. Uh, you know, I was in the hospital a lot, and high fears and hallucinations and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I also was like really was really fixated on the whole Vietnam thing for a long time. Uh, like I watched Jacob's Ladder, I don't know, at least a hundred times. But also, uh, Apocalypse Now, I've watched about a hundred times as well. Just like really fixated on those two movies. And uh, I don't know if it's because I came of age during that era, or, or for other reasons, but. There you that's go.
0: Interesting. Me too. I just watched Full Metal Jacket again for like the 10th time. Like mm. I just casually watched that again. For mm. apocalypse yeah. now, Final Cut, great movies. Yeah. yeah. But I haven't yeah. seen Jacob's Ladder in a long time, but I, I forgot that there's that theme. I wasn't that about them being – wasn't there supposedly in the Phoenix program some heavy-duty drug that was supposed to drive the troops insane? Is that true? Was that a myth? or was? That yeah, I, I I, believe it was true. I, I think yeah. it was STP. Oh, that's right. SGP, good memory.
1: Yeah. Um, well, I'll tell you something. I mean, I was at, uh, this is, this is back in the nineties, but I was invited. There was this sort of like a uh, speakeasy for ex-Marines and my, um, my sister-in-law had a friend there and, they, and he invited us there and it was all these kind of old ex-Marines. I've been mean, going back to, you know, guys who fought in the South Pacific during World War II and so on. But um, at one point in time, He's there's this poster with all this Vietnam, you know, vet lingo and all this this kind of slang that they use during the Vietnam War and so on. And then he mentions Operation Phoenix. And like out of nowhere, you know, turn around and this guy who looks like I he looks like Thor on a meth bender. I mean, it's just big, you know, dark red, kind of ruddy face. Uh, like sort of grayish ginger hair and just like a crazy look. And he just starts going on about Phoenix. And I like I kind of realized, oh shit, this was, this was one of the guys. Cause <laughs> he starts shit. talking about Phoenix and he's, you know, he's kind of unleashing all this detail about Phoenix. And it's just like, how did he know this? And I was looking at him going, yeah, I couldn't kind of see this guy <laughs> being... It was uh, it was frightening, man. I mean, it was scary. This guy was not stable.
0: I had a guy who was a high school teacher who really told like an Operation Phoenix kind of thing with the most graphic brutality. And we were like in shock in high school. I still remember that. Yeah. So long, yeah. But there's a the, lot more. Vietnam war was,
1: yeah, I mean, the oh, Vietnam crazy. War was so horrible and yeah. just so worthless and unnecessary. And, uh, you know, it's just... It's, I think, you know, when you talk about the endless American midnight, you know, and I think that it's a very interesting thing to see how like the rise of like, you know, programs like MKO and I talk about, but also like the serial killers and all this other kind of really dark negative stuff that's speeding into the culture. You know, like you mentioned before, you know, that Bobby Bosley said, you know, that, that Vietnam was kind of like, I mean, it's the first televised war and and all this horrific imagery is being Beamed into people's living rooms. I mean, you know that famous um, that famous image of those little kids running from the uh, the napalm attack. I'm just absolutely horrific. Um, I I think that that war just really. um, I think that it broke something in us. I really do. I think it broke something like something like very. Crucial and important in our culture was broken by it, and I, I was just reading that um, there are these uh, Vietnam War veterans who are moving to Vietnam, like they're retiring in Vietnam, and I just think like that's so amazing to me, you know.
0: Um, but it's uh, amazing, yeah. and you can do a time. There's probably a whole book on how many people became serial killers after being in Viet- Vietnam. Or-, mm. or I
1: think it's like mm. Leonard
0: Lake, Richard Ramirez is brother was showing super graphic pictures. I mean.
1: Oh, God, yeah.
0: Leonard, yeah, Leonard Lake and Robert Ng or whatever, those two crazies. Yeah, um, yeah. Terrible. We're about 55 minutes, Chris. Uh, is there anything you'd like to add or anything I missed before we wrap up this discussion about the American, the endless American Midnight?
1: um Yeah, I would just say, like, again, I mean, I, I have a very um, pessimistic attitude towards where we are going collectively but like i said it's it's something that you can decouple from it's something that you can disengage from you know i mean even it's just something just as simple as just disengaging from the you know the the public conversation as it stands you know like today with all this ukraine stuff and all this kind of stuff so i mean it's it's not something that you can't you can't get away from you know it, it isn't like it's a soft totalitarianism. It's not a hard totalitarianism, but I, I think that um, it's going to get worse. As you know, like I said, a lot of these plans, these long-standing plans that you know can trace back to, I don't know, Francis Bacon or whatever, um, are just not going to work. They're just not going to work. <clears throat> I have absolutely no doubt in my mind that they're, they're just not practical. And I think a lot of the 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 almost kind of panic that you're feeling at that that elite level is the realization that these things aren't going to work. And again, I think a lot of it's based in the fact that they were sold a bill of goods by all their you know tech and science guys who were just shining them on for grant money all these years and telling them that this this is going to happen. This, you know, we're going to have this, and we're going to have that, and we're going to have all these superpowers and comic book superhero kind of uh, technology. And, you know, like I said, we've hit peak tech, and I think we're in for a long period of stagnation.
0: Interesting. And there's a lot more other themes in this book that you address, mysticism or mythicism, new scientism, which we didn't cover, a lot of your writings about movies and bands, and your kind of background in uh, the south of Boston was really interesting to read that too. What's the city that you grew up in? again? Remind me.
1: Braintree. Braintree. Braintree
0: mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Braintree mass was in here. Just a lot of stuff of Graham Hancock. So I really enjoyed reading through the book. So thanks so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Oh, Thank and also you, before um, we go, where can people get the book and social media contact? Do you have a website or where can people reach out to you?
1: Um, yes. Yeah, so you can get the book on Amazon and then for, uh, just come to secretsun.blogspot.com, And that will, you know, Send you to all other kinds of places and so on. So, uh, and I'm also um, on Twitter at Secret Sun blog, and you know all sorts of other places. I have a Discord channel and a Facebook group and so on. So, I'm Facebook, definitely and you're
0: active on Patreon too, right? So, you're yes, sir. Stuff there too. So. Yes, sir. I'll put those links to the blog, Patreon in the show notes so people can check it out. Thank and you, And again, sure. Uh, the Endless American Midnight Dispatches from the Secret Sun by Christopher Lauren Mills. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you, sir. All right, take care. Stay there.